at that point uh, because I had many weeks to pick different texts. Uh, and so one of the hard things for me when I do Advent like this is reading a whole book and trying to figure out what's, what's the best text for our people, what seems to fit either the idea of peace or summarize the book. So let me give you just a few uh, kind of big picture stuff for the prophet Isaiah. And even before I do that, uh, the prophet Isaiah is called at a time when the people of God, specifically Judah, the southern kingdom, and if you would ever line up all the good kings and bad kings, uh, Judah had more good kings than bad kings. And Judah uh, sat back, in a sense, and watched Israel be taken into captivity. And, and you would think that Judah watching and hearing the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of the, their uh, contemporaries, you would think that they would have seen that and they would have said, surely when the prophet warns us, it is not a vain warning. Look at what's happened to the other ten tribes. We need to take heed. We need to return to our God. But they didn't. There was a deep change that was needed in the people of God in Isaiah's time. There's a deep-rooted change that is constantly needed in our hearts, too. Uh, we tend, just as they do, to drift into some forms of what I call, not what, I, what everyone calls, syncretism. Some form of worshiping our God and worshiping idols. Rarely do you see the people of God make a wholehearted turn away from God. Usually it is a slow accepting of all the gods of the nations around them. And so when you read the Old Testament and you say, why are they forbidding Israel to marry these people and to marry those people? Why, is that, why do they constantly do that? And that's the reason. They bring with them their gods, and those gods slowly, maybe over generations, turn the people of God away. So in order for change to happen, usually there are two things. One, um, we have to become unsatisfied with the current situation. Right? If you're going to change banks... Usually, you need to get frustrated with the bank that you go to. If you're going to change restaurants, if you're going to change spouses, there is a sense that you have to become unsatisfied. The old boyfriend is not as good as he used to be. The old car is not as good as he used to be. The old insurance carrier, my old cell phone doesn't do all the things that it should. So in order for change to happen amongst most people, you have a certain level of dissatisfaction has to happen. And those of you who know me know I had a background in sales, and that's what I would do. Someone came in, sometimes they came in to pick up, you know, we had, like most places, we had service way in the back. So on the way to service, you had to walk through all of the new shiny stuff. You know, I thought about renaming our church, the new shiny church, just to see if maybe people would come. Uh, you had to walk through all the new shiny stuff, and I'd bring back their machine, I'm like, oh, this one doesn't have that, or it doesn't have this, or it doesn't have that. You know, that was back when people bought typewriters and stuff. Uh, so you raise the level of discontentment. But then a new one is presented as the answer. And that's what happens in Isaiah. Uh, God himself does this. And it is amazing how much work has to happen before the idolatrous human beings' discontent is aroused so high that they finally say, okay, we're going to turn away and return. So here's what's going on. Um, and the interesting thing also about Isaiah is there's 66 chapters, and there happens to be 66 books in the Bible. 39 books in the Old Testament, 
The first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal really um, with condemnation. That's the prophetic theme, condemnation. The prophet is warning and condemning. He is pointing out for 39 chapters, these are all the things that you are doing. These are the things that are creating this issue with you and your God uh, for 39 chapters. That's why when we get to chapter 40, for some of us, it, it is like opening the New Testament. It is like going from, from Malachi to the arrival of Christ. It is like going from the weight of the law holding us down to the beauty of the gospel when we see the promised Messiah in flesh and blood as Jesus Christ. So that's the first 35 verses. 36 to 39 uh, are the historical context of Hezekiah uh, and them being carried away uh, after Hezekiah's death. Uh, so in 586, Judah is taken away. Um, in 722, Israel is taken away. So it's, it's over a hundred years that Judah sees uh, Israel in captivity, and yet they fail to repent. One of the thematic verses in that section would be from 37, chapter 37. Uh, this is kind of uh, thematic for what goes on in that first section where the prophet says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. That's just a flavor of the warnings that Isaiah gave the people. I know you. I know what you're doing. I see it. I know everything that is going on. And if you don't change your ways, I am going to put it says, a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back. So for 39 chapters, Isaiah has cried out. Now, those of you who know me know I spend a lot of time in the prophets. And one of the, time, one of the reasons I spend a lot of time in the prophets is because it makes me really thankful for our church. <laughs> I'm really thankful that this isn't the kind of message that I've had to give. I'm really thankful that it has not been, at least on my watch or my time in, in the history that, that, that I've seen uh, the church wholeheartedly turn away or people turn a deaf ear or what happens to Jeremiah, get thrown, and we'll see that next week, gets thrown into a, a, a well in the mud. And people tell him to shut up. And so every time I think maybe my job is difficult, I read the prophets and I'm like, I got a sweet gig. <laughs> But that's it, 39 chapters of that, and then we get to chapter 40, today's text. Uh, and this theme in 40 to 66 is really messianic. It is about the Messiah. Hezekiah dies, and it is words of consolation. Um, uh, 45, chapter 45, For my sake, he writes, uh, For the sake of my servant Jacob, my Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Isn't that amazing? Write in your notes, Isaiah 45, 4-6. That's Calvinism. We didn't know that Isaiah was a Calvinist, but he was. He was a Calvinist. Uh, way before Calvin was born, it was in the Bible. 
I am the Lord, there's no other. Besides me, there's no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That's the section of promise and restoration. So let me just give you a basic lesson in prophecy. A prophet speaks the word of God, and he understands that the words he speaks aren't original. He is not making them up. He is equipped and given. This is the message. God has told me this is the message to give to you. That is why I am very wary today when people say, God told me to tell you this. And I, I'm like, do you know what that means? Were you flat on your face when he spoke to you concerning me? Or is it maybe, maybe a better way of thinking it that you feel led by God the Holy Spirit to share this with me? Maybe that's the way it should be said. In my understanding, I would encourage you to think along those lines rather than God told me to tell you this. Um, when the prophets in the Bible speak, it is not an original message. They have not made it up. They are messengers directly giving the word of God to the people of God, and they are accountable for what they say. They're not to change it. They're not to make it more palatable. They're not to ask the people, what do you want to hear this week? They are giving the people of God the word of God. Now, here's what our God did since there wasn't a written canon. Our God would give these prophets short-term prophecies. And they would say things like when uh, Jake has been preaching out of 1 Samuel. It's crazy if you remember when Saul becomes king. Uh, Saul is told by the prophet Samuel, this is what's going to happen. Weird things are going to happen. When you see these things happen, you'll know that you are to be anointed as king. So that was the way it worked. Prophets gave short-term prophecies. And when those short-term prophecies came about, the people could then look and say, surely this is a prophet of God. I can trust what he has said about long-term prophecies, right? So if you read any common stuff that gets put out there in Christian bookstores uh, about the blood moons, about 2020 being the end of all time, about 2020 being the return of Jesus, quit reading those authors, okay? If they said things and they haven't happened, don't read them. Don't be afraid of them. Uh, and, and, and don't follow them. Um, so that, that's what happens. So you think about Isaiah saying, uh, we warned, we warned, we warned, look at Israel. We warned, look what's happened. We warned, we warned, we warned. For these people, the light's going to turn on for them when they are in captivity. The light will turn on for them in the midst of captivity. That's when they as a people will look back and say, indeed, God's word is right and it is true. Indeed, what we are struggling with, what we are suffering from, is because we have turned our hearts away from the Lord. And so chapter 40 comes as that section. And so it's important for us to remember that. He is, he is now speaking comfort as a future prophecy to the people. When you are struggling, when you are in Assyria, when you see Jerusalem in ruins, when you and your children are carried away, remember this also. And that's really the beauty of prophecy. God warns, but he also comforts. So that's where we pick up this morning. Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, 
that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the reading of the Word of God, and it is good for us. You may be seated. So when I was a youth pastor, the kids used to do uh, impersonations of the senior pastor, and they were pretty good. I suspect some of you will do impersonations of me, and some of you kids will do impersonations of me. And one of the things you'll probably say, and I hope you do, I hope you remember this text. When I read the scripture each Sunday morning before the sermon, isn't this what I say? The grass withers and the flower fades. You kids have that memorized? But the word of our God, Donna's laughing. She's got it memorized. She's going to make a TikTok about it. (laughs) The word of our God will last forever. I think about that. I want, I want you to remember that. That what was great about this church stood upon the Word of God. So, as I said in my prayer, there's some things here that are, that are painful and hard. But it's in the midst of that that we really do uh, start to grasp the depth of the power of God's covenantal love to us. All right, so he is speaking, emphasizing, and so in Hebrew text, uh, emphasis is done really two ways. Emphasis is done by repetition, and so you see that in Scripture, right? When the angels, when, when, when uh, uh, Isaiah in chapter 6, when he beholds our God, when he gets to see it in the year that King Uzziah died, 53 years of, of reign, uh, King Uzziah dies and, and Isaiah sees it. What do the seraphs say back and forth? Holy, holy, holy. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. Very, 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 very holy is the Lord God Almighty. Here, comfort, comfort. Here, emphasize grass withers, people fade, flesh is like grass. Emphasis, Repet- repetition, and placement. So, whatever you want. Uh, emphasize you put in the front of a sentence. So it's interesting whenever you're doing your interpretations, uh, sometimes you'll have a verb that starts in the sentence. So you have, when you, when you interpret it, you sound like Yoda, right? Help you, I will, you know? And uh, praise me, you must. Uh, because emphasis, 
So here, the emphasis is, it's like it starts out, comfort to my people. Now, there was a doctor friend of mine in Tupelo. His name's Lyndon. Lyndon had a chair that was magic. I sat in the chair, and that chair loved me. We went to their house for some kind of church function, and I sat in the comfy chair, and I'm like, hey, Lyndon, Amelia, you may not know this, but your chair loves me. This, this chair is like no chair I've ever sat in before. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's a special chair we got from here. And I go, no, no, the chair loves me. I need the chair. I didn't get the chair. <laughs> but I have a chair in my office. It's giant. If you've been in there, it's huge. Tammy says the chair overwhelms the whole office. I'm like, don't you dare take that chair. It is my comfy spot. I sit there in that chair, and that chair loves me, not as much as Lyndon's chair loves me, but that chair loves me. I don't know what you do or what you think about for comfort, but that's my comfort spot. I have my Bible and a little special foamy thing that it sits on so I don't crook my neck, and I have my coffee mug sitting here, and that's my comfy spot, comfort, comfort. So Isaiah is telling this to a people in exile. Now here's what he's going to say to them. I want you to think about this. An all-knowing God chose this people to be his. And he tells them time and again, I didn't choose you because you were numerous. I didn't choose you because you were faithful. For you're a stiff-necked people. He tells Isaiah at his call, Isaiah, you're going to preach and their hearts are hard. I chose you because I am gracious. I chose you because of all the people in the world. I think you will be the people that need my grace the most. And if my grace comes to you, what's that going to say about me? Christian, do you ever think of yourself that way? God chose you to be his. Not because you were so close to him. Not like you were almost already there. Not because you really wanted him or you were seeking him out. But God chose you of all people serving him on this planet at this very time to display His marvelous grace. Let me tell you how amazing His grace is. Think about it this way. Would you bring a child into this world knowing that that child would disown you? I mean, if you really knew it. We're, we're going we're, we're to have a baby, and um, this baby is going to disown me. Is not just going to embarrass me in public, but it's going to really hurt my soul. This child that, uh, that I'm bringing into the world is going to rebel against me, is going to break promises, is going to move closer to me whenever that child needs something, and I'm going to believe that child is really for me until they get all they can from me and turn and stab me in the back. I don't think parents really think about that when they're wanting a child to come into the world. But this is even worse. Would you choose a spouse and enter into a marriage covenant knowing full well that your spouse would be a chronic adulterer? Would you choose a spouse saying, I know that time and time again I'm going to have to rescue him, I'm going to have to rescue her? After you've been caught, after you've been disciplined, Or are you that spouse? 
in the midst of returning once again to the Lord, you struggle to think that He still loves me? I don't know about you, but there are many times I think He must be reluctant that He called me to be His. I am sure that there are other people more gifted, more faithful, more loyal. That's the love of God to these people. He chose a people, and in the midst of their rebellion, he is telling them, when you are taken away, your only comfort will be me. When you are by the rivers of Babylon, and you are weeping, and your captors are saying, hey, sing us those great songs of Zion, and you say, I have no song in my mouth. I want you to be comforted in me. And that's what he's saying. Exile does not prove that God is done with you. That's absolutely what you would be tempted to think. He is done with me. They warned us, they warned us, they warned us, and now that it's happened, he is done with us. It's like the child whose parent somehow thinks that discipline means they don't love me anymore. Au contraire, it's the exact opposite. The discipline of our Lord proves that his covenant faithfulness is reliable. So the sermon and the sentence this morning, God's ultimate purpose for his people is not destruction, but redemption. Not death, but eternal life. And so all throughout this text, we are told to cry out. Uh, This first section, um, and we we crammed it in there on one slide, but in your Bible you'll see these uh, strophes, Uh, these uh, different verses laid out. And um, there's really four sections, and I'm going to run through them fairly quickly. But the first section is is, uh, God God announces by His voice comfort. Forgiveness is kind of the key word in verse 2. The second section, comfort is delivered by God visiting. He will deliver. That's in verse 3. The third section, uh, our comfort is secured by God's word. We are assured of it. Assurance in verse 8. And the fourth section, Uh, We are to celebrate uh, in confidence God's work. We call that one testimony. So in these first three sections, it is God crying out to us. And in the last section, it is us crying out to him or to the world. So first, God's comfort announced by his voice. Uh, Emphasis, we've talked about that. Verse 1 starts, comfort, comfort. Uh, That word often used in reference to grieving over a lost loved one. Then he goes on, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Uh, Speak tenderly to their heart. Tenderly. But even before that, he is saying, you are my people and I am your God. So in verse 1, that ties in that whole theme. We call it this golden cord that runs through Scripture. This golden cord of God's sovereignty. I will be your God and you will be my people. You can find that in every book of the Bible. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so in the midst of this exile, your God is calling out to your, his people, your mind, and I belong, you belong to me. Now he says, speak to them, to their heart, words of encouragement. And these are what you're to tell them, three things. Their warfare has ended. Their hard labor has ended. Any movie where you see an internment camp, or even even better, a, a prison camp, uh, 
a uh, concentration camp. It's ended. Secondly, your iniquity is pardoned. This announcement of comfort comes with a promise of pardon. This God who has seen everything, who knows everything, who warned them against it, and they forsook his servants and his warnings, and they sinned anyway, he is pardoning that sin. And it says that she has received, or you have received, double. Um, now, there's confusion about that. Are we, does, it, does it mean that uh, God has given them twice the punishment they needed? And that's not really what it means. Uh, in Near East culture, when you had a debt... Um, it would be nailed on parchment on your door. And I, the way I think of it is, uh, maybe some of the convenience stores here, uh, if you walk into a convenience store sometimes, and you'll see a guy's license on there, or you'll see a check. I don't know if they do that anymore, because people don't use checks anymore. But it used to be, you walk into a convenience store, and you'd see all these checks, copies of these checks lined up. Nod your head. You know that? You ever seen that? And it's all these people that bounce checks to them. And if you're like me, you're at the counter, and you're like, I wonder if I know any of these people. Right? It's like this public shaming. Right? Don't, don't do this. This guy bounced a check here for gas. You know? And so um, in that same manner, that's what happened. So it was put on your door. So everybody that came by, hey, don't do business with this guy. Look, he still owes these people this much money. So the doubling is, is when someone would pay that debt. They would take that note and they would double it over. And it would be completely covered. It would be completely paid for. And that's what, the, that's what the prophet is telling them. Not this, not your uh, exile is paying for your sins. And after a certain number of years, you've done enough penance that it's paid for. No, your God is delivering you. I am delivering you. And you have received double. Um, brothers and sisters, you've got to, as a Christian, you've got to believe these words tenderly spoken over you. It is the beauty of our gospel. It is when our times of confession, our God is longing to take and double that back over and say it has been covered. Um, so the first word he says, cry out comfort, comfort my people, you have been forgiven. And then verse 3 to 5, uh, we're comforted by this visit of God. And the key word there is deliverance. In a sense, uh, what is next? And here's what's wonderful. Uh, not just God, God didn't just decide to forgive sins. He is delivering us from the power of sin. Not just canceling our debts, but delivering us from that power. And here, of course, uh, is, is the foreshadowing of John the Baptist, right? A voice is crying out in the wilderness. Make way the paths of God, right? That's the, that's, that's the prefiguring of John the Baptist. He's going to come, and, and it says in Matthew, that's who it was. The scripture talked about him. He would come, and he would make paths straight, so uh, God comes to deliver. What are we to do? He says here we remove every obstacle so that the glory of God may be revealed. The glory of God consumes the prophet Isaiah 37 times. That term is used and five times in the last chapter. The glory of God. Our God comes in great glory to deliver, to rescue uh, Israel, your, uh, your exile is not just, to be, you're not just to be freed from the Babylonians, but you are to be freed from all the false gods. Our God forgives, but he delivers. Comfort by the visit of God and his deliverance. Thirdly, comfort secured by God's word. 
In a sense, the camera angle changes now from God to mankind. As you go to verse 6, a voice says, cry. Now he's told, what am I going to cry? And he says, here's what we know about human beings. Their flesh is like grass. They're about as stable as grass. They are temporal. They are not powerful. They are insignificant like grass. But I give you my word. That's the whole hinge here. But my word, my word will stand forever. People will come and go. Flesh will come and go. Kings will come and go. But my word will stand forever. Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Moses to Joshua always talking about God's Word not failing. And Joshua at his death in verse 45 of chapter 21, he looks at Israel and he says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. All came to pass. And he says this to the people. What's the prophet saying? As sure as the exile is to you now, as sure as the suffering is to you now, it is proof that God's Word stands. You see, oftentimes Christian people... And again, a lot of those outside the church would say things like, I'd like to believe in God, but my life stinks. And in my mind, I'm like, well, what does that have to do with it? So a God that you don't worship and don't acknowledge is supposed to give you everything to make you happy in this existence so that you can continue to live as though he doesn't exist. Is that, is that what you think that a holy, righteous God would do? And here, the Christian people who are tempted to look at their exile and just say, if he was really our God, he would defeat the Babylonians. The Assyrians would be gone. Sennacherib would be gone. If he was really God, if we were really forgiven, then we would be having the good life right now. He says, no, no. Um, men are going to come and go. Flesh is like grass. But my word will be fulfilled. Comfort my people. You have been forgiven. You will be delivered. And you can take it to the bank because it is my word that has said this. So what's left for us? It's left for us to celebrate in confidence. To bear witness. To give testimony. Verse 9. Go up to the mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The Lord comes with great might. That's what we are to do as the people of God. We are to bear testimony to Him and to His might. Celebrate it publicly. Go up to the mountain, sing it, and shout it. What is their testimony? This is their testimony. God blessed me. I turned my back on him. I suffered as a result of it. And in my suffering, the Lord gently spoke to my heart and he returned myself to him. We return to the Lord. We do it as the people of God at least every week. 
But many of us who walk closely with the Lord, we do it every day. Our hearts are called to return. We don't return to the Lord so that our suffering will cease. Okay, sometimes we, we work it out as a formula. I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray, and will tomorrow, will my job get better? I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray, I'm going to think of every sin that I've committed, and I've heard people do this. I, think of every, I can't think of any of the sins that I've not confessed. And yet, life tomorrow is still hard. This word is for you. These people, many of them, did not experience this. Their exile was much shorter, but many of them died in exile. And yet the comfort that God promised was still theirs. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have received double. I delivered you. I am your God, and you are my people. So we find comfort today not in a nice overstuffed chair, but in the Good Shepherd. He comes to forgive, to deliver, and to assure us that He alone should be worshipped. Now think about this. Early when we started this, I said, would you intentionally commit yourself to marrying a chronic adulterer? Of course not. Right? We just, I mean, if I was a dad and, and my daughter says, yeah, well, I, I want to marry this guy, but, you know, he likes to go out with other girls all the time. I'm like, yeah, honey, we'll just keep looking, right? I mean, but our God says, that's who I want. I mean, this is Old Testament, folks. Our God says, that's my people. I'm going to rescue them from the arms of their other lovers. And I'm going to hold them fast to myself because I love them. Because those other lovers are going to destroy them. They're going to kill them. They're going to make them worthless. I love them too much. I'm going to come to them. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to keep my word. And one day they're going to go on the mountain and they're going to shout about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that where we stand, we see that the valleys were flattened and the hills were made low, that our Savior would come. That all the words of Isaiah, every single prophecy, have been fulfilled in our Lord Christ. In this Advent season, Father, may we be a people that, that, that just revel in this amazing promise as we, we can see in even a deeper way than these people what it would take for our husband to rescue us, what it would take to wash us clean, what it would take to deliver us what the fulfillment of your word looks like. And that we would be a people of worship. We too would be those that would go up on the mountain and we would say, behold our God. Behold our God, he is God and there is no other. Behold our God, he is faithful to me, though I am faithless. Behold our God, 
He alone is to be worshipped. And now, Lord, as we take the bread and as we drink the cup, will you, through this mysterious sacrament, will you fill our souls and our hearts? As we take the bread, would we believe that as you sing over your Son, you sing over us? As we drink the cup, that we too would believe our sins have been paid double, that we are right before you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for your sake, and that you might receive the proper worship and adoration that you deserve. Amen.